Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Jocelyn Bishop, and I work at Hurwitt and Associates, and I'm with my colleague Martha Fram from Goulston and Stores. Um, we are going to be talking about board structure, governance, and fiduciary duties. This is, um, since it's part of the fundamental series, this is um, somewhat high level, but uh, but you know, we know that there are going to be quite a few people in the audience today. And so we welcome your questions, um, whether they be a little more straightforward or more complex um, as we go through our presentation. We won't um, put them all to the end. We will try and integrate them a little bit in our conversation. Um, let's see. Okay. Next slide, please, Tron. Okay. Um, so the first uh, area that we're going to be talking about is um, board structure and governance. If you can turn to the next slide, please. And here we want to talk about for just a minute, what do we really mean by governance? Governance is kind of a um, dual pronged uh, concept. So we're talking about both um, who has oversight with respect to a nonprofit organization and who is responsible for guiding the organization at a high level. And then also the, um, the written documents that provide, um, provide guidance as far as how to govern an organization. And so you'll see a few references throughout our presentation with respect to chapter 180, that's Massachusetts general law. So we will really be focused on uh, Massachusetts uh, legal aspects, although I would say most states um, have quite similar applications with respect to governance. Um, as uh, as Massachusetts does, and then also talk about um, bylaws and articles a little bit, particularly bylaws and internal policies. We won't be talking too much about internal policies, but oftentimes we do um, work with organizations on internal policies to ensure that um, basically for all of these um, documents to ensure that the organization is being run appropriately. And one thing I will say there is that Chapter 180 does provide kind of some highlight guidance with respect to governance, but really the bylaws and the articles are the primary um, reference tools, documents that the um, board, officers, executive director really should be following with respect to how to run the organization. Jocelyn, can I just interject a, a point Please. Mm -hmm. um, these are all sources of authority as to um, how organizations should be run. And there is a hierarchy. So I just wanted to state the hierarchy a little bit, which is obviously um, you start off with the statute, Chapter 180. So your articles and bylaws cannot conflict with Chapter 180. Following Chapter 180 are your articles. So that has your bylaws cannot uh, conflict with your articles. Your articles will win. Uh, so understanding sort of the, the hierarchy of these authorities and understanding that the details are in the bylaws. So your first go-to are the bylaws because that's kind of the roadmap. Those are your operating manual, so to speak, on everything that we're talking about going forward. So we're going to really focus on bylaws, but I think it's helpful to understand how those interplay with the statute and the articles. Mm-hmm. That's great. And lastly, is internal policies, which are secondary to the bylaws, um, mm -hmm. um, and but are usually more targeted, as opposed to uh, um, organization wide. Yeah, they have right, some very specific details in them too, right? As particular areas of the organizational um, governance and operations. Uh, next slide, please, Trenton. So here, 
as we're talking about the um, individuals who are helping run and govern um, the organization, this is, you know, a typical traditional organizational structure of a U.S. nonprofit corporation. You can see the board of directors is um, the top box, and that is, you know, basically a number of people who are helping operate the organization at a very govern the organization. I should really should say at a very high level. Um, oftentimes within the board, you have officers. So, example, the president, the treasurer, and the clerk. Um, and then you also have the CEO or executive director who does more of the day-to-day -day operations within the organization. A lot of times the board of directors um, kind of splits themselves out into different committees as well. So different areas where they're helping out um, in further detail with respect to the organization. And these are just some of the most common ones, fundraising, finance, executive committee, um, and then, you know, other ones as the organization may choose to, um, to determine. Okay, next slide, please, Trenton. The board of directors, so the role of the board really is the oversight. And, um, and when I say oversight, I mean really ensuring that the organization is focused on its mission and providing direction to the organization to remain within that mission, but perhaps go in different directions within that mission. They are not involved in the day-to-day -day operations. So really, I think that's something that's quite um, difficult for a lot of boards to understand and board members and something that needs to be reinforced oftentimes with board members is that they are not um, the executive director who is dealing directly with the staff who is working on the operations. They are really focused on the oversight role. Um, the executive director, the board is the executive director's boss, essentially. So the executive director reports to the board. And then the board also you know, makes amends and repeals different bylaws. The bylaws in turn will provide a minimum and maximum number of directors um, and also kind of describe the whole election process in the terms of the board members. And typically the directors are not employees of the organization. Next slide. So, uh, here, with respect to officers, officers have um, certain authority as individuals to act on behalf of the corporation. So again, as I mentioned, the pre president, treasurer, and clerk, um, that's in Massachusetts Chapter 180, specifically spells out that these are the three officers that are required for a nonprofit organization they don't necessarily have to use those specific terms, but um, but or titles, but those are the basically roles that are important to have within an organization. Uh, you can have others, certainly, including vice presidents is is uh, not uncommon necessarily, and you can also have you know co presidents or uh, assistant treasurer, assistant clerk, etc. And the bylaws again. They provide the list of officers, um, you know, what the officers are uh, ha have as far as their roles are concerned in, in general. So that's at a relatively high level. Oftentimes the organization may have a separate document that provides further detail as far as each of those roles is concerned. Um, and then also talk again about the election process and the terms. Officers may or may not be um, directors or employees of the organization. So oftentimes you may have a treasurer who is the officer. You at a large organization, you may also have a CFO who would be considered potentially an officer, but also would be considered an employee of the organization. They have different roles, but, um, you know, could both be considered officers. 
Next uh, slide, please. And then committees, as I was referring to previously, there are you know certain roles and responsibilities that um, may be delegated down to the committees. Really, most common are the ones that we had in the chart. Um, but you know, fundraising is a very popular one, certainly for uh, all board members to get to be participating in, but particularly board members who. Um, you know, who have some experience as far as raising funds. A lot of times they will be helping out on that um, on that committee. So, um, and then also what's important to understand here is that you can have individuals from outside of um, the board who are committee members sometimes. Those are advisory committee members and uh, and they don't have voting rights with respect to, um, to board authority. Okay, next slide. Thank you. Okay, Martha, I'll turn it over to you. So we've sort of covered the who and the what um, in terms of who the people or the players involved, the board members, the officers and the general structure. Um, the next segment is really about the uh, how those people are supposed to operate and what duties are owed to the corporation, what their standards of, of um, functioning is. Next slide, please. So we wanted to just go over briefly what are fiduciary duties. And, and those are the duties that are owed by the governing body, the board of directors, trustees, if it's um, structured as a trust. So these, we're going to focus on corporations for the purposes of, of this discussion, but nonprofits might not be formed as a charitable corporation. They could have other structures, um, more typically a trust. And the, this part of the discussion, I would say, applies equally, um, regardless of whether you're in a corporate form or a non-corporate form. Um, and it's the obligation to act for those individuals to act in the best interest of the organization and its uh, charitable class or beneficiaries, which is typically the public, um, and in furtherance of the organization's charitable purposes. And there's two primary fiduciary duties that we're going to be focusing on, which is the duties of care and loyalty. And just at a high level, duty of care means that a person has to act, uh, you know, prudently as an ordinarily prudent person would employ, and I'm gonna summarize it, we'll have talk more about this in a little bit, it's to do your homework, it's actually pay attention. You know, so you actually have to do the job. You can't just sign at the bottom line or show up to meetings without prepping. Um, and then the duty of loyalty is to act in good faith and in the best interest of the organization and the charitable mission above your own personal interests. And there are times when those could collide and when you agree to be a director, it means that in that capacity, you are putting your personal interests secondary. Next slide, please. Um, so this is just a little bit of a recap. Again, going back to that hierarchy of authority, that's where the fiduciary duties come from. So they come from the state law as to you know, the form of organization that you've selected. Uh, so you have to understand where the organization was formed, whether it's a trust document or it's articles of incorporation. Um, federal law in tax exempt status also will have something to say about the governance and how um, directors should operate in connection with maintaining that exempt status or whether there'll be penalty taxes that could apply. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then again, articles, bylaws and the like. In the, in the conflict of interest policy in particular, some of those internal documents are really focused on needing these, assisting the board to meet their duties. And uh, next slide, please. Um, so now it's like the what, the so what. <laughs> um, the issue is, is that the attorney general, Massachusetts attorney general, is charged with the oversight of charitable organizations, um, in particular chapter 180 corporations, uh, to ensure that the charities are acting in furtherance of their exempt purposes and that the charitable assets remain charitable and aren't you know, being diverted uh, to the pockets of um, the board of directors. 
which is sometimes referred to as private interment. Uh, the Attorney General's Office has a really helpful guide for board members of charitable organizations that goes through in much more minutia than this presentation, uh, what its perception of what these obligations are and how boards should uh, operate to fulfill them. So I've included a link here to that guidance, which had been outstanding for a really long time, but just about a year or so ago, um, uh, in December of 2022, it was updated. And there's some, some relatively substantial changes that uh, the AG flagged that they're now gonna be looking for in how boards um, operate. Next slide, please. So in particular, the updated um, Attorney General's Office guidance puts extra emphasis on continued board education and paying attention to all available information, especially as to financial and fiscal matters. A, a particular focus on the charitable mission of the organization. I think what was interesting to a lot of us in this area is that this new guidance says that there's a, char a fiduciary duty owed not just to the organization, but to the mission of the organization. And that is the, to me, a relatively new and questionable bifurcation because they should be one and the same, quite frankly. But they are really thinking about um, about the mission as opposed to the organization, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and then, of course, inclusion and diversity in all aspects, including board recruitment and selection. They want to see people from diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, experience and skills. And they want the board to be reflective of the community that the organization serves so that there is a voice. And, and, in, and in particular, this is also new. Uh, and I think it's not particularly um, advi advice that is easy for new organizations to adopt, but term limits are recommended to ensure board vitality, promote inclusion, and have more turnover and more um, you don't want a bunch of insiders or a, a club of people who have the same mindset. Um, that's what they're sort of looking for. But I think that's unlikely or be hard to impose for a new organization. But well-developed organizations should be taking a careful look at that. And a lot of organizations do that voluntarily. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so going back into a little bit more depth of the duty of care. Make sure you have all the information. You must do your homework and pay attention. Ignorance is no defense in this scenario. <laughs> you, um, it's, and it's something that you can't do once in a while. You have to do it all the time. You have to make sure that you have time to meet these obligations and make sure that you can review the materials before board meetings so that you can make informed decisions. Um, you know, and so part of that is that the board should be responsible for educating themselves on an ongoing basis about their roles and responsibilities and doing training similar to this, as well as to make sure that they receive all the necessary information, um, whether it be on a project or the financial status of the organization, so it can issue spot and make um, reasonable, well-informed decisions. One of the changes in the AGO guidance is this idea that Board self-assessments are now recommended. And I've added a link here to a sample um, self-assessment. And it's really um, a process for the board to be more self-aware about what their goals are, how they're meeting their goals, and highlighting maybe some structural changes that they think might be helpful. And it's a way of triggering these conversations and having much more deliberateness in the board's um, uh, consciousness of what they're supposed to be doing. Next slide, please. Uh, so the duty of loyalty and particular conflict of interest, this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of putting your own personal interests, including financial interests, um, below the organization's interest. So one of the key pieces of this is the conflict of interest policy that really the IRS has mandated de facto, by de facto, because they ask a question now in the annual return for a nonprofit as to whether you have a conflict of interest and when you apply as a new organization, they wanna see a copy, typically. So the real key with most of these conflict of interest policies is disclosure, making sure that 
other board members um, or officers are aware of personal business interests or other interests in a proposed transaction or activity of the organization. Um, and, and really these outside interests, so whether they be financial or competing nonprofit interests, meaning you might serve on the board of more than one nonprofit and may maybe be con competing for grants or they may be competing for donations or other awards. And that's where non there could be competing nonprofit interests. Um, so it's really important that those be disclosed so that the interested person can recuse themselves. They can make a presentation typically, but they should remove themselves from a discussion so that people are able to speak freely and decide whether that personal interest is in fact a conflict or not. And whether if it is a conflict, because there could be mutually beneficial trans, uh, situations, not every personal interest is a conflict and that's for the board to determine. Um, without the burden of having the interested person sitting in the room. Uh, so it's really important that when a conflict or an interest arises, that the board uh, documents its process, makes clear that the interested person recused themselves, et cetera. Um, one piece that I, it's sort of a preview of coming attractions is that Jocelyn will be going over this later, but Boards or organizations can take action by either by meeting or by unanimous written consent. And if someone's recused themselves, that pretty much forecloses unanimous written consent. So a meeting is required in order for people to really discuss and really vet um, the issue, which is not guaranteed if someone's just signing on the dotted line. And so that's the basis of that rule. Um, next slide, please. And Martha, that's probably where the policy, the conflict of interest policy comes into play and is very important when somebody is potentially recusing themselves, that the board take a look at that policy to make sure that they're following it appropriately. Exactly. In the policy, it's really important that you actually follow your policy. The, fo the policy is the instructions of, oh, someone told us they have an interest. Now what? Read that policy. Mm -hmm and go from there. And, and the board should be reviewing as part of their self-assessment whether there should be changes to that policy. They should learn from prior experience. Um, so the next section is still under the guise of fiduciary duties, but it's specific to the issues of, you know, how to pay attention to the financials, which is what we're gonna go into next. So next slide, please. So, um, Directors can't make good decisions if they're not aware of what's going on. So make sure that there's careful financial planning and record keeping. Um, and that's just critical for good financial oversight. So it's really important as a board member to ensure that there's a realistic annual budget and the internal accounting systems and controls are in place. Um, this is where a lot of organizations trip up because it's, oh, it's a well-oiled machine. <laughs> Directors you know, end up not paying a lot of close attention. And by the time it becomes obvious to them, it's sort of you know, too late. So oh, the way to avoid that is to have those regular um, check-ins and really dig into the numbers. And so that you're not, this isn't being uh, disclosed when the auditors show up and tell you this, you want to avoid that piece. Um, so don't hesitate to speak up. You know, directors should be asking questions and the more conversation and back and forth and learning that's going on in those meetings, the better. Um, next question, next slide. <laughs> and no question is too stupid there, right, Martha? Yeah. It's probably yeah. one of the areas that directors are most intimidated over, I think, is the financial aspects of the organization. And that is a really good point. There is literally no, um, no stupid question. And it may be that you think, oh, I've looked at financials before, but this format is just totally different. Ask that question. Um, because this is not something that can be delegated. There's a general rule that fiduciary duties cannot really be delegated. The buck stops with the directors. Now they can 
rely in good faith on the advice of well-qualified professionals, but not if they have reason to think that there's something wrong. I mean, good faith is really key in that piece. And it's really important that the directors themselves are looking at these financial documents and looking at the tax or the information returns and the annual AG filing, which is the form PC um, themselves, because that translates what they heard in those financials in, in a, a very public reporting. And so it's really important that that translation of those financial documents into the actual tax reporting or information reporting makes sense to the directors. And that's where it can be helpful to be a layperson, right? Because you have the opportunity to ask a, what might seem like a stupid question that un, opens up a can of worms or an inappropriate reporting. Um, so the other piece where the director should really pay attention is on the hiring and uh, setting the compensation of the executive director or the officer suite um, and process and documentation on any, you know, on this particular issue is, is key, but it's really true across the board. Process and documentation is the name of the game. Um, and in particular, and when setting compensation, board should consider public perception and regulatory compliance because the IRS is there to say you're paying unreasonable compensation and there can be some penalty taxes, which I'll go into a little bit later. Uh, so this is an area where the directors may actually have personal liability, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Please, the next slide. Um, and so oftentimes people, if they don't have a financial background, kind of want to know, what am I supposed to be looking for? And the, the thought it would be wor uh, worthwhile to go over some warning signs. So if you see a decline in income, contributions, grants, or operating revenue, dig into why that's happening. Um, increases expenses without a corresponding increase in operations or an in income. You want to understand if there's waste going on or something else that why is there an increase in expenses if we're not um, doing more work. Uh, credit issues, inability to meet your, your loan services, um, <clears throat> or you just don't feel like you have enough information from the accounting group that's either lacking detail or don't mesh with your own understanding of what's going on. Uh, and the earlier you speak up, the better. So, you know, it's unlikely that it's going to be fraud or criminal activity, but it's not unheard of. <laughs> and so... Don't assume that nothing bad is going on. It's better to be ch to check and be sure um, because there's just too much. I mean, you can search for all the scan, you know, financial scandals in the nonprofit sector, and you don't want to be that organization. Next slide, please. Okay, so now we're going to switch over to some of those prohibited transactions, the executive compensation and, and where directors can have personal liability for failing to meet these fiduciary duties. Next slide, please. So the biggest stick and the most immediate stick is actually wielded by um, the IRS. Um, so the federal law governing charitable organizations prohibits the idea that there could be personal private benefits. So i.e. someone's getting rich, they're getting the equivalent of dividends out of the operations of this organization. So people who receive pay from a nonprofit must receive reasonable compensation for the services that are rendered. Um, uh, and so that's for the insiders, but it also includes any other individual that might be engaged in a transaction. If there's a sweetheart deal where a personal, a private person is benefiting from the assets or the operations of a charity who aren't the charitable mission, you know, the recipient of the charitable services. So tuition scholarship, that type of thing is technically a private benefit, but that's the purpose of the organization. That doesn't count. Um, but hiring um, someone and overpaying them, giving them a sweetheart deal because they might be related to someone you know, or you know, back scratching, that type of situation is not permitted. Um, and so private benefit, just you'll hear the term private benefit and private inurement. Um, private inurement is generally when it's the insider, so think executive compensation, 
private benefit is when it's with third person who doesn't necessarily control what's happening on the board. Um, and the IRS can hit you with penalty taxes. So first, if they identify it and you're in trouble, you have only a certain period of time to unwind the transaction and you can have a 10% uh, penalty tax on the value of the excess benefit. And if you don't unwind it timely or at all, then it's a 200% penalty tax. And there's an additional 5% tax on anyone who approved the deal. So no one wants that. Next slide, please. Um, so aside from those types of taxes and, and penalties, there's just some other personal liability that could arise for um, failure to, uh, for, of the organization to pay employment taxes. That's a, that's a personal liability, whether you're in the nonprofit world or not. That's, that's true of all corporations um, or anyone who is supposed to pay over employment taxes. Uh, failure to pay wages, uh, unemployment taxes, and the like. Um, personally benef benefiting from or approving a, approving a transaction that creates private enrollment or other private benefit, that's we sort of already talked about. Violations of the duty of loyalty and failure to perform the required duty of care. It's really, those last two are more theoretical in practice, in part, not that you can't be sued on it or you can't have a lot of pain and suffering if, it, if decisions are challenged, but typically you're not going to run afoul if the decision with benefit of hindsight turned out to be the wrong one. The key is that the decision was made in good faith and in full exercise of the duties of care and loyalty. You, you did everything you were supposed to do. It's when you really did not, um, it's, you'd have to show that uh, you met your duty in effect. Um, so next slide, please. And we can talk if people have questions about that because it's more fact specific. And, and this issue has hit the news most recently in some of the smaller college closures around New England and what those boards knew or didn't know and how well they prepared students for transition. This is an area where there was a lot of scrutiny. Um, and in some cases, people are banned from serving on boards if it's not if they're not necessarily hit with uh, you know monetary penalties, but it, it's not an area that you want to have to deal with at all. So as uh, as this slide is indicating, the suits can come from a lot of different places, whether it be employees, the IRS or AGOs, injured third party creditors, donors, and the attorney general. So there's a lot of people who could complain about what's happening at the nonprofit. Um, so it's really important to keep careful that rec the keep record of what you are doing in your processes. So minutes and, and showing that you complied with your own internal policies to show that you actually met the duties of loyalty and care and good faith, because that's prima facie evidence that you are complying. Um, in addition, most organizational documents um, provide for indemnification for directors and officers, but usually it's again, only applicable when someone is acting in good faith and there's no gross negligence or fraud, et cetera. And of course, uh, director and officer liability insurance should be uh, procured. So make sure that that insurance is selected carefully and to read the policy. Um, so all of this coverage is often depends on the good faith um, meeting of these duties of loyalty and care. Next slide. So, now I'm going to switch back to Jocelyn, who's going to talk about those procedures and keeping the minutes and and how you build that record of the board operations. Exactly. And we kind of were debating back and forth whether it should be operations, administration, what have you. But regardless of what you want to term it, um, basically, this kind of covers, you know, the board meetings and what happens at them and how they should be run. So next slide, please. Next slide. 
Trenin, please. Thank you. Um, so with respect to overall meeting preparation of the board, um, first of all, it's important for, um, for the board members to take a look at the bylaws to see how much notice is required prior to a meeting of the board taking place. So <clears throat> oftentimes it can be you know, a five-day window, it can be a three-day window, what have you, but you want to make sure that if a board meeting is taking place, that the um, notice requirements are followed. There is an exception with respect to waiver of notice, so if there is a particular issue that has arisen at the organization, at the board level, and the board really feels like they need to meet, um, basically within one day, for example, or a very short time period and will not be able to meet that um, notice requirement, they can um, waive their rights to that notice. However, if um, notice is not waived and it was provided, it wasn't, you know, provided it wasn't followed properly, then potentially you can have a board meeting where all of the actions, all of the decisions at the board meeting may become considered null and void because that notice uh, requirement wasn't followed. And I, I didn't wait. I'm sorry, I was just interrupting. Yeah. Um, because the real issue there is if you don't give enough notice, then you might not get a quorum to actually take action and you've just delayed everything because you have to start over. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, um, trying to sneak something in by not giving the other the other faction of the board notice is that's what these rules are designed to prevent so that you right. have us what ends up being a secret meeting. Yes. Yeah. So if there are kind of two factions of the board, for example, on a particular issue and one faction says, hey, let's uh, let's let's call a board meeting, um, but we're just going to do it, you know, immediately and not follow the uh, the notice requirement. Well, there's you know, that doesn't give fair um, credence to the other faction of the board who would like to also speak and have their um, opinions heard too. Uh, as part of a board meeting, there is always or should always be a written agenda. That agenda can be circulated by email. Um, oftentimes it's circulated ahead of time prior to the meeting so that people have an understanding, board members have an understanding of the topics of um, discussion. A lot of times the agenda kind of follows a very particular format and, um, and the skeleton of the format is consistent, you know, meeting per meeting, but um, but the content of each of those topic areas changes. And then you can also have within the agenda what's known as a consent agenda. A lot of times that's presented kind of at the, the top of the agenda. And those are areas that typically people will um, won't have a problem with, you know, consenting to their passing, for example. And so they're kind of listed out there and then people can vote on the group of those points, um, you know, at one time and say, yes, I agree. I, I approve of the previous board meeting minutes or, you know, what have you, different areas like that that are relatively um, uncontroversial. There's also the packet that goes with the agenda. So as I just mentioned, the meeting minutes from the prior meeting, um, oftentimes there'll be an executive director's report, financial statements, because as Martha was indicating, it's important to be aware of the financial uh, situation of the organization, different committee reports. If there are, you know, if there's a big fundraising to do coming up, there may be a report there from the fundraising committee, etc. And then also um, if there's any policies or any sort of documents that are to be voted on at the meeting, those would have to be included as well. Uh, next slide, please.
So the formats of the meetings really can take place in a couple different ways, but the best one, um, as far as we're concerned, and the preferred one really is the in-person meetings. In-person meetings are ideal because you really can have that dialogue between the board members and, excuse me, really get a good understanding of different people's perspectives and really be able to flesh out um, any sort of topics or issues that arise within the meeting phone or video conference meetings, particularly video conference meetings are very common these days. And those are perfectly acceptable as long as they're um, accepted within the bylaws. Um, and then you also have unanimous written consent as, as an option. And there it's basically in lieu of an in-person or phone or video conference meeting, it's just kind of a list of all of the th the items that the board members need to vote on and, um, and get their vote through that. It has to, as you know, as it says here, it has to be unanimous um, vote in order for those um, votes to be counted. And also as um, Martha was referring to before, it's really, you know, the written consent is, it's not, you know, it's it's not the um, most ideal format for the meeting because there's no opportunity for carrying out your kind of duty of care as far as having the opportunities for different um, discussions. To ask questions. What's that? Yeah, There's no exactly. opportunity to ask questions if you're using unanimous written consent, and so yeah. oftentimes that will happen if it's already been vetted, as in the in the project, for example, has been discussed repeatedly, and yes. so already um, the board may have already uh, sort of approved of uh, guidelines for the transaction, and then people will feel more comfortable on a unanimous written consent using that because the board's already discussed it and it's. The, the transaction is finalized falls within the pre-approved parameters that the board's already approved. So that's where you would typically see this. Um, yes. The point I was making is that this is foreclosed to an organization if someone has to recuse themselves in the conflict of interest yes. scenario because they can't vote. So it's not unanimous. People miss that a lot. So we're trying to nail that down for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's a good, good one, important. Uh, next slide, please. And then, you know, at every board meeting, there should always be meeting minutes taken. Typically those are taken by the clerk. These are kind of, this is kind of the content as far as what should be included within the meeting minutes. So the date, the place, the time, um, you know, proof of notice, Hopefully notice is required. And so you would have that proof within the meeting minutes. Um, listing out who is at the meeting is very important. So not only the list of you know, directors who are there, um, but also if um, you know, usually the executive director also attends the meeting. Um, there could be other people within or outside of the organization if um, a lot of times. So, for example, um, at the end of the audit, for example, the CPAs will oftentimes come in and do a presentation as far as their findings with the audit. And then also a presentation on the tax return, the information that's disclosed in there. Um, so basically listing out who the directors are who are present and also to ensure that there's a quorum. And so quorum means, you know, whoever makes up the group that um, can move a vote forward. So, and then also sometimes we'll have notes as far as if uh, a director is not present, if their absence was actually excused, um, you know, because a lot of times if somebody's absent, if they notify the board ahead of time, or at least the president, for example, if they're going to be absent, then it's considered an excused absence. But there's only a lot of times only a few excused absences that are allowed for board members. Um, so if 
somebody repeatedly is not showing up, they can be dismissed from the board. Justin, can I just interject? This yeah. list is really important to make sure that you actually have a quorum. And the quorum generally is the minimum number of directors that are required to be present in order to have the meeting go forward. Mm -hmm. So the quorum is not, let's say you have a, a board of directors of 12 people. Typically, a quorum is not all 12 people. There's an understanding that some people might have an excused absence. So they may, the bylaws may say that a quorum is a majority of the directors. So you need seven people to show up. And then decisions might be some smaller percentage of the quorum. So keep in mind that the quorum, if you don't have a quorum, you're not having a meeting. That's that's really the reason for this list mm -hmm. uh, is to prove that you had a quorum. Sorry to interject. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that's always voted upon typically is the um, previous meetings minutes to ensure that they're accurate as far as um, what was discussed and the votes that had taken place. So that's important. Um, you know, to ensure that the documentation is is accurate there. Um, having clear statements of the votes and also not only the statement as far as the votes are concerned, but who has voted for, who's voted against, um, if any abstentions are taking place. For example, if you have somebody who uh, has a conflict of interest, they would recuse themselves. Um, <clears throat> unless it's unanimous. If it's unanimous, then you don't necessarily need to record every person and their title um, by name. You can just include, um, you know, just to simply state that it's unanimous is acceptable. <clears throat> this It's important to also keep in mind um, for the clerk, especially who's, who's hopefully taking these meeting minutes, that it's not a specific it's not a transcript of the meeting so in other words it's not a verbatim word for word every word that is um that is exchanged has to be recorded here really it's much more of a high level um discussion documentation but also some detail with the important salient points of the meeting particularly when there are votes um and really, it's also very important to ensure that these documents, the board meeting minutes, are kept within the organization's permanent records, because you never know when you might need to go back and refer to them um, if there was an issue that took place later on and to see that record, whether that was an appropriate process or not that was made. Okay, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so as Martha mentioned, um, with respect to the um, the decision making, the voting and the consent, you know, typically the well, pretty much always the bylaws are going to provide the voting standard um, as far as, you know, what makes up a quorum. And as Martha stated, it's, you know, typically a majority, but Oftentimes, either the bylaws or the state law can um, prescribe a higher number of people um, to, to be considered quorum um, with respect to votes. So, and these are really for the particularly important votes, um, <clears throat> such as, you know, if the articles or bylaws are being amended, if there's a contemplation of a merger. Um, Etc. There's, you know, you have to have, you, you want to make sure basically that the organization and everyone within the organization at the board level is on board and operating in a consistent manner with respect to the, the trajectory of the organization. And so that's why the voting requirement is higher. The quorum requirement is higher in those situations. Um, and then finally, 
it's important to know that uh, you can't have a vote by proxy as far as the board members are concerned. So in other words, if I'm unable to attend a board meeting, there's going to be an important vote that's taking place. I can't send my daughter, for example, in lieu of me and say, please, you know, go ahead and vote on my behalf. That's not acceptable. Or it doesn't even have to be your daughter. It could be another board member and say, he's going to put the vote in for me. That doesn't work. Um, that's why video conferencing is allowed and telephonic meetings are allowed. Mm -hmm. um, but voting by proxy is not. <clears throat> One thing I would just add on the forum piece and the voting thresholds, this is also an area where people can get mixed up because oftentimes the bylaws are relatively streamlined and we'll just say majority wins you know, more than 50% of the directors that comprise a quorum is enough to take action. It's really important to know that this is an area where the statute may have something else to say and the statute wins. So it on a what we call a major decision or major transaction, like a merger, dissolute, a bunch of different things. The statute, don't forget that the statute exists and could easily have a higher voting threshold in order for it to um work or be passed. So that's just a, a goes back to that hierarchy conversation yeah. where your bylaws may say one thing, but if the article, if the articles or the um, chapter 180 says something different, that that wins, not your bylaws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Very important to point out. Um, let's see, I don't see any questions, Martha. So if we want to move to the next slide, that's it. Um, I think that's it. But um, just for future reference, if you're interested in continuing with this fundamental series, um, these are the dates for the next ones coming up. Um, private foundations, taxes for tax exempt organizations. So think of state, you know, tax, sales tax. Um, unrelated business income, et cetera, and dissolution. <clears throat> and I believe that that is, um, that may be the final um, one within the fundamental series, but uh, keep your eye out for those and uh, on those dates and feel free to register for them. Thank you all very much for your time today. Um, feel free to reach out to us directly if you do have any follow-up questions from the meeting and uh, we appreciate your time. Yes, I second that. Phil, our contact information is on the first slide and I'm happy to take calls. If you have a thorny issue or you're just not sure about something on the materials, I'm happy to talk. Thank you, everyone.